Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. My name is Emmanuel, the host of Let's Talk, and welcome to the to this episode of uh, our talk every Tuesday. And uh, today we'll be looking at biblical grace. So we want to understand more about grace. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot, a lot is out. A lot has been said about grace. A lot has been thrown to our faces in churches, mm -hmm. uh, in the streets of Kampala, and everywhere, even in uh, in the TVs and and radios. Mm -hmm. What is the rightful understanding of grace? Maybe let's start from there, defining grace and then... You are very right that grace is one of the most common words that is used, whether in the churches or in the Bible or in public life. In fact, you can't even begin to make sense of the meaning of life apart from, from grace. You, you hear it in churches, you hear it in cathedral hymnals, you hear people on the street use it, but as you have already noted, a common word such as grace can also be a very much misunderstood word that we really need to define it well, we need to clarify it. But before we do that, it is important to understand that this is one of the most important concepts that you can find in all of scripture. In fact, many theologians have agreed that grace as a doctrine or as a teaching is the very center and core of the whole Bible message that if you remove it from the pages of the Bible you don't remain with a message for the world at least not a message that brings hope for the world the word grace not only is the center of the biblical message but you will capture it right from the book of Genesis to the very end of the Bible at the, in the book of Revelation in fact if you open your Bible even right now where you are and you look at the very last chapter, very last verse of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 21. It reads that the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. It is at the beginning as God is creating. It is all throughout every book of the Bible. And it closes the very word of God in the book of Revelation. Reminding us not only of its importance in Christian theology and life, but even more importantly on its centrality to the Bible, to all of Christian life, but even more importantly to all of general life. Now for us to understand it well, I would like to draw your attention to one particular passage in the Bible, which we find in Ephesians chapter 2. I would like to read it and then I can describe the different characteristics that we find about God's grace and then in a way we can sum it up together and see what it means for us. Now according to Ephesians chapter 2, when you read from verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes the church at Ephesus and he begins by saying, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, 
we were by nature deserving of wrath. But God, but, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heaven, the realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8 says that for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance for us to do. Now, if you listen to what the Apostle Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 2, he is basically describing the grace of God, what it looks like, its role in the salvation of sinners, and he kind of juxtaposes it against the background of humanity's sinfulness so that we can see its role in the saving of sinners. Paul has begun by describing the condition of all those who stand before God, not just as sinners, but as men and women who were dead. Please note that whenever the Bible describes the condition of a human being, it doesn't describe us as sick people or as people who are weak, but as people who are dead. Dead in our sins, dead to the holiness of God, dead to the truth, dead to everything that really matters. And Paul says that right there, in that condition of our deadness in sin and in transgression, God who is rich in mercy has intervened in, on our behalf. And from that time, Paul begins to describe the act of God or the action of God on behalf of dead sinners. Now, remember, dead people don't do anything. Dead people don't decide. Dead people don't make choices. Dead people don't change. So basically, the situation Paul describes here is in such a sense that when we think about the grace of God, we think about it as the exclusive act of God on behalf of sinners. We couldn't say that it is something that we do because we are dead and dead people don't do anything. So what Paul describes here is what God who is rich in mercy, what God who is full of love has done on behalf of sinners. When we think about biblical grace, we think about the action of God in quickening dead men into life, that they may live their lives for the glory of God and Him alone. Paul describes grace as one that has been freely given to us by God. It is not given because of anything you and I have done. Remember, we were dead. It is not given to us because of how smart we are. Dead bodies are not smart. It is given out of the willing, voluntary act of God emanating from His love without any pressure or coercion. So when we think about grace, we think about something that is freely given. We think about, in fact, Paul calls it a gift. Now, a gift is something that you do not deserve. It is something that you do not work for. 
if you are a worker and you go and do a job for a month and they give you your salary, what they've given you is your wages that you deserve. You cannot thank your boss and say, thank you for the gift you have given me. No. He's giving you what is rightfully yours. But when we think about biblical grace, as is described in the Bible as a God's gift, we think about something that has been given to us out of the love of the giver and not necessarily out of anything within us. And that's why you see in scriptures, like in the Old Testament, the word grace is defined as loving kindness. Kindness not from us, but kindness from God the giver. In Exodus 34 verse 6 we read that the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Again, you notice that the Bible describes grace from God's angle, not from our angle, not from what we are doing, but from what God has done. And you see, grace as the center of the Christian faith is something that sets Christianity apart from any other world religion that you will ever know or hear of. Because while most of these religious groups tell you what you need to do to be loved by God or accepted by God or saved by God, Christianity tells you what God has done on your behalf and invites you to benefit. God has set a banquet table and grace says, come and eat. You hear Jesus in Matthew 11 verse 28 saying, Come unto me, you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. They are called from their weariness and from their burdens, from their weaknesses, from their sinfulness, not out of anything good in them deserving God's intervention. In fact, the reason they are called is because they are not deserving. Grace itself is defined against the background that an all-loving God lavishly gives men something that they do not deserve, something they could not earn, something they could never pay back, something they cannot lose. It is free to those who are receiving it. It is given and deservedly and unexpectedly. It is sovereign and eternal. It has its origin from God and it has its consummation in God. So whenever you think about grace, the first thing that should come in your mind is God and what God is doing. Give us some examples and mm. how we can earn this, mm. uh, this, this grace you're talking about today. The concept of grace is usually something that is uh, not easy to comprehend, especially because in the world system in which we work, we work on a merit system. I do something for you, you do something for me. So when we open the Bible and we realize that God is inviting us to something he has already done and does not need our input, we find it very strange and even wonder whether it's actually worth it because we would like to work for it or pay for it somehow. Yet you open the scriptures and you realize that God has always dealt with his people purely on the basis of his grace. Dead men coming to life because of God's action, God's gracious intervention, God giving a gift to people who do not deserve it. When you think of grace, for instance, think of the parable of the prodigal son, a young man who had messed up his life, taken his inheritance, ran into a faraway world to indulge himself in earthly pleasures, 
And then he realizes that the money is gone. He's starving. He has nowhere to go. But then he remembers, wait a minute, I would go back home. My father, after all, loves me. He has servants that he feeds. If his own servants can have good things, why can't I also go and at least become one of those servants? In that story, you can see that the prodigal son is aware that he has sinned against his father. He is aware that he does not even deserve to be called a son again. He crafts some kind of repentance that he's going to make when he reaches home. But as you read the story, you realize that actually the story doesn't say the son was accepted back home because he repented, though he said sorry. And the parable says that when he was still far away, the father saw him, the father ran to him, the father hugged him, the father gave him clothes, returned his ring as a symbol of authority, asked that a party be made to him. The son did not even have the chance to apologize. It is the father reaching out while the son is still far away. It is the father restoring him back to his dignity and the relationship he once enjoyed. The story of the prodigal son's coming home is one aspect or one demonstration of what grace looks like. A young man who did not deserve to be forgiven or restored, but is nonetheless restored, not on the basis of his goodness, but on the basis of the father's great love. Think about the story of this thief on the cross. Remember there were two thieves who had been crucified, one on the, each side of Jesus at Calvary. And they were aware that they actually deserved the punishment they were receiving. Even in their conversations they are saying, why would uh, one of the thieves is challenging the other who has uh, uh, blasphemed Jesus. And he's saying, for us we are receiving what we deserve. But don't you see that this man has not done anything? And to that thief on the cross, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. I assure you that tonight you will be in paradise with me. A man who deserved to go to the fires of hell. A man who knew very well that his punishment was just and indeed he, he, he deserved it. By evening he was instead of going to hell, heading to paradise. What made the difference? Was it because of his goodness? He didn't have any. Or was it because he was sorry? Not necessarily. But on the basis of Jesus' compassion, this man who was headed for hell ends up in paradise. You hear again the same echoes of grace on Calvary. When Jesus hung there in great excruciating pain, he lifts up his eyes in heaven and he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. These are people ridiculing him, blaspheming him, mocking him, even spitting on him. Has Son of God, he has every right to pronounce judgment on them. Maybe Jesus would have even threatened them and said, the way you are treating me, you wait. When I resurrect on Sunday, I will show you. That's what you would expect in terms of a worldly way of thinking about matters of justice. You hurt me, I hurt you back. But what is Jesus doing instead? He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Sinners rightly deserving of God's justice and judgment, instead what do they receive? Jesus' forgiveness and prayer on their behalf. And then you will see the same grace coming through as you read the story of the man Barabbas. 
a man who was destined for, for death as well. In fact, a man who should have been on Calvary on the day Jesus was crucified. But instead, Jesus carried the cross on in his place. Jesus hung on that cross in his place. Now, I want you to imagine on that day, when Barabbas had the prison doors open, Roman soldiers come in and they tell him, from now on you are free. And Barabbas is wondering, what do you mean I'm free? I am a terrorist. I deserve the judgment that I am receiving. I know that according to Roman law, I deserve a death sentence by crucifixion. I have been waiting for you guys to come and take me to the cross. And now all of a sudden you are saying I'm free. What do you mean? And the Roman soldier has only one statement to tell him. The man Jesus Christ has died in your place. Barabbas doesn't get it. Why would a man I don't know, I, I never asked, I don't have a relationship with, why would he die in my place? Yet we read in the scriptures that instead of Barabbas, Jesus was delivered unto death in his place. Now friends, that's what we really call biblical grace. Receiving something undeserved, something you couldn't earn, something you could never pay for even though you were given a chance. When we think about grace, we think about God giving all of himself to the least deserving sinner who ever lived. And guess what? In exchange for nothing. Someone has defined grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. The cost or the penalty of our transgression and our sin was paid by Christ and not by us. We as sinners who deserved the judgment of God instead received his grace free of charge. Look, listen to these couple Bible verses. In Titus chapter 3 verse 5, Paul writes and says that not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Some other versions say that according to his grace or his loving kindness from which we get the word grace again. Remember, Paul is telling us how we come to be saved from the sin that would have led us into eternal judgment and punishment by a holy God. And he is quick to remind us that our salvation has not come about because of what we do, but because of what God has done. Not by our works of righteousness. You cannot think about grace and at the same time think about your personal contribution or effort. When we talk about grace, we are talking about an act of God that has happened upon you, bringing some desired change by God, not by your intervention or an effort on your behalf. Again, you read that in Romans 5 verse 8. Romans 5 verse 8 says that for God demonstrates his love in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And the key word there is the word still sinners. When we were still, when we were still undeserving, when all we could ever get was God's judgment, we are told that he demonstrates his love in this way that Christ Jesus died for us. Now when you think about grace, it is really a beautiful thing. In fact, it is something that every Christian should be proud of and rejoicing about that even you, a sinner, undeserving as you were, God who is rich in his mercy and grace has saved you against any effort or any intervention you could ever have brought in. 
Now, one of the things that make salvation good news is that very aspect of grace. If it was something we do, first of all, it would not be good news because none of us could ever do enough to merit the goodness of God or to merit the love of God. Now, Reverend Rogers, yes, please. Won't somebody take advantage of the grace? Because uh, j just as you uh, did mention about the parable of the of, of the, 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 the prodigal son, mm, mm. he was not forgiven because he repented or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But as he was coming and approaching, ooh, the father mm, threw the mm. thing on his face. Yes, yes. Won't some other person take that and take advantage of that kind of, of understanding and say, I, I can, I can as well do it. Mm. After all, the grace yeah, is uh, sufficient. That's right. That's right. You were right in saying that, and unfortunately, there has been a lot of abuse of biblical grace, partly arising from a misunderstanding of what grace is, and that's why it was necessary for us to lay the foundation and show why we should appreciate grace and live in wonder that God could save you and me, miserable and deserving sinners. But grace is not just defined in one way as the initiative of God in saving sinners. That is what we would call saving grace. But there is something else that the Bible points out in regard to the definition of grace. And that's what I would want to call enabling grace. That God has initiative in saving us, but also God has initiative in keeping us saved. If in saving grace we defined it as God's riches at Christ's expense, where he saves sinners on the basis of Christ's payment, in this second part uh, we understand enabling grace to be God's redemption active in the Christian experience. That God doesn't just save you a miserable sinner and then walk away. But the same grace that saves you keeps keeping you and keeps ensuring that you become that very thing for which God has saved you. Now when you do not understand this, it's very easy for you to take God's grace for granted and begin to say, ah, he saves me for free. He saved me when I didn't ask him. So after all, I can do anything I want because the grace is sufficient. It will always save me. As a matter of fact, we see that today there is a version of evangelical Christianity that has grossly misunderstood and abused biblical grace. In a sense that today they are teaching that because grace is sufficient and uh, you don't need to do anything for you to be saved, it has now been taken as a license for immorality and indulgent living. Thus today Christians will tell you, God is a good God, he can always forgive me. Even the sins I haven't committed, he has already paid for them, so I can do whatever I want. After all, God will forgive me. That is called the sin of licentiousness in the New Testament. In fact, when Jude in his letter writes about false teachers, one of the things he points out is their abuse of God's grace. In verse 4 he says that for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among us. They take the grace of God as a license for immoral living. And he describes them as people who have already been condemned 
Why are they condemned? Because they take advantage of the grace of God and use it as an excuse for indulgent living even though the grace of God was not designed for that. In fact, one other Bible passage I wanted to bring to your attention which brings that aspect of God's enabling grace is Titus chapter 2. In this book, Paul has been describing how believers ought to live their lives in light of the grace of God that has brought them salvation. He has described the relationships in a Christian congregation, how husbands relate with wives, how children relate with parents, how slaves relate with their masters. And when he comes to verse 11, he describes why it is important for Christians to behave that way. And he begins to talk about the grace of God. Why should Christians relate in such a loving and caring and sacrificing manner for one another? In chapter 2 from verse 11, he says that for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And by all people, he's not saying that everybody is going to be saved. Remember, he's been describing categories of believers, slaves and masters, parents and children, older people, younger people, men and women, Greeks and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles rather. So all those variety of categories, he now in verse 11 says that for the grace of God has appeared offering salvation to all categories of people, no matter who you are. So where you have been, regardless of your gender or your career or your background, God's grace is available for salvation. But then moving on from there, from verses 12, he tells us what grace does in the life of a believer. And Paul here is speaking against those potential abuses of biblical grace. As a believer, what does grace make you? What does grace cause you to be and to do in response to what it has done? Now, he mentions about four things that I can quickly summarize before we go for a break. Number one, he says that this grace is available for people of all categories, no matter where you come from or who you are. Number two, he says that this grace teaches us or trains us in godliness. It teaches us to say no to godlessness, to, to, to lack of self-control, to unrighteousness. But this same grace also trains us into godly living, that people who are recipients of God's grace automatically will be called and expected to live godly lives. Number three, this grace teaches us to live in godliness as we look ahead to the return of Christ, but also as we look back what Christ has already done for us. And I can explain a bit about that when we come back from the break. But number four, that this grace teaches us to be zealous for good works. So people who have received God's grace are not only grateful for the grace that has saved them, but now this very grace prepares them to do good works. Good works not so they can be saved because grace has already saved them and freely but good works because they have been saved and therefore they now live their lives for God out of gratefulness for what God has already done. The role of grace in enabling us to live the Christian life, especially understanding the two aspects of biblical grace, that on the one, on the one hand it is saving grace as God's initiative to bring sinners into salvation, on the other hand it is enabling grace 
that sin has made sense now must live in a certain way that honors God and brings glory to his name. Anyone who thinks that because of grace they now have a right or a license to live recklessly and carelessly has clearly not understood the biblical teaching about grace and this is what especially Paul focuses on in these verses. Listen to what he says. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. We began by saying that Paul has been describing how relationships work within Christian community and fellowship. And now he gives them the theological basis for living in that kind of manner. And his basis is simple, the grace of God. In describing this grace, he looks to the, to the present, how believers are living their lives. He points them to the future as the one motivation why they should live godly lives. He looks back to see what grace has already done for them in the past. And so you can see that this grace Paul describes covers the past where they are coming from, the present where they are as believers, and the future where they are going. He says that this grace trains them in the present age, right now, to live godly lives, to live God-honoring lives, to say no to worldly passions, to be controlled, to be upright, to be sensible in whatever it is that they are doing. That the grace of God doesn't just quicken you out of sin and death, but it also gives you the power and the ability to live the believer's life and to live it in a way that moves you towards godliness. How you know that a certain believer is living in the grace of God is how they are growing into their godliness in the things of God. That's one physical demonstration that God's grace is at work in a Christian. If you see somebody who continues to live the life they lived before they became Christians and they claim that that is evidence of the grace of God, just know that they have not understood God's grace. Biblical grace doesn't just bring you in, but it cleans you inside out. It brings you in as you are, but it never leaves you as you were. It changes you and conforms you to the image of Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's why Paul is saying that it trains you to deny, to say no to everything ungodly. It trains you to say yes to everything godly and righteous in this present age. But Paul goes much further. And he says that one reason why we should live in a godly way in this present age, especially is because we are looking forward to the glorious return of Christ. He describes him as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He describes him as one who is going to appear gloriously. It's as if he is telling these believers, saying, Remember the man who paid for your sins? Remember the Christ who died so that you could change from a sinner to a saint? He's coming back. 
So if you know that the man who paid dearly for you to be the Christian you are today is coming back, how should you live in light of his return? And not just a return, but a glorious return. Because of the glorious return of Christ, believers are being enabled by God's grace to say no to everything ungodly and to live godly lives as they look forward in eager, earnest anticipation of Christ's return. But Paul also is quickly, quickly reminds them who this Jesus is and why they owe him their allegiance to live carefully and sensibly. So in verse 14 he describes who Jesus is and what he has done. He says that this Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, not some of it, but all wickedness, that Jesus has given himself for us. So we are saved not because of what we did, but because of what Christ has done. In giving himself for us, he has redeemed us from all wickedness. That's point number one. Point number two is that he redeemed us so he could purify us to be his very own. So there are two key words there. He redeemed us so he can purify us. So how can you say that you are a believer living by grace? How can you accept that Jesus has redeemed you, but he has not purified you? Because if you are still living according to the dictates of a sinful world, succumbing to the pleasures of a sinful world, then you have not been purified. But listen to what Paul is saying. That he has redeemed us from our past sinfulness, from all wickedness, so he could purify us to be a people who are his very own, and then so what? So that we can be a people who are eager to do good. That believers, one way in which you know that they are living grace-filled life is that they have a zeal to do good. They have a zeal to live right. They have a passion to be godly. They recognize what Christ has done in redeeming them and in purifying them and therefore they live in gratefulness for Christ's work. That Christ who has given himself for them, redeemed them and is purifying them is the same Christ coming back gloriously to receive them. Now, how can you understand those powerful truths? And then continue to claim that you are free to sin and do whatever you want because God's grace is sufficient. Clearly the grace you are thinking about has a different definition. It cannot be biblical grace. Biblical grace redeems. Biblical grace purifies. Biblical grace prepares and preserves. Biblical grace conforms its recipients into the image, the identity of Christ, and they begin to yearn to grow in godliness, but even more importantly, they have the power, the enablement, the ability to walk in godliness and right living. A Christian who is not desiring to live godly and right lives are clearly demonstrating that God's grace is not at work in their lives. Yet from scriptures, we know that the God who saves you from sin also empowers you for sainthood or for right living, if I might say it that way. So it's a contradiction for anyone to say that they have been saved by grace into licentious living. Now we can do whatever we want because grace is sufficient. That reveals a misunderstanding of biblical grace and maybe even causes you to wonder 
Are you sure God's grace has been revealed in your life yet? Are you sure God's grace has redeemed you from your sinfulness, from your deadness to sin and to transgression? Because if the grace dearly has saved you, that same grace should be keeping you. That same grace should be growing you into godliness. And when Christians misunderstand that enabling grace, or the relationship between God's saving grace and God's enabling grace, they begin to take for granted the grace of God. And that's where you see people today in the hyper-grace movement using grace as a license for more ungodly living rather than a purified lifestyle that Christ has purchased for us. May God help us. If you are out there and you are a believer, may God help you to experience that grace, that power that enables you to live godly, upright, righteous life as you wait earnestly for the glorious return of Christ. The grace of God saves, but when the grace of God is taken for granted, then judgment becomes imminent. And that's why we read in Jude 4 that certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago are the kind that are taking or perverting the grace of God as a license for immorality. We would like to ask that you would stand firm in that grace that has made you a Christian, to live in gratefulness for what Christ has done, and to be the kind of believer who is zealous that Christ has prepared you to do. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.